business success usually comes to those who are too busy to be looking for it. Join RVK for the award-winning RV on Business Show every Tuesday at 12 midday. It's not about thinking out of the box. There is no box. Only on 101.9 High FM. Welcome to 101.9 High FM. It's 8 minutes past 12. Thank you so much for joining us. Today's topic is absolutely fascinating. And with us is a guest that we've had a few times before. Always an interesting chat. Neva Hadas, who's a digital transformation partner at DYDX. Neva, welcome back to High FM. Thank you so much. Great to be here. Great. We're talking about ethical pricing. And as I always say, the best chats are often had off air. But uh, let's go back to the beginning of the chat we had before. And please explain us, what is ethical pricing? Is there such a thing as ethical pricing? How does it really work? Sure. So ethical pricing really looks at the concept of what is a fair price to pay. And, and ethical pricing goes across a number of factors. So, so I guess it, it, firstly, it arises because we, we kind of, we have it, we find ourselves in a world where kind of social inequality is in some way systemic. In other words, we, we have systems and processes which make sure that the poor get poorer and the rich get richer. And I'm not a, you know, I'm not a kind of a crazy socialist. I'm a fairly capitalistic mindset, but even as a capitalist, I can see the, the dangers of how we do these things systemically. And I'll get back to exactly how it works. But not only that, we have, so we need ethical pricing to make sure that it's not cheaper to buy a product if you're rich than if you're poor. You need ethical pricing also because often companies produce um, goods and services, but the externalities in the old economic sense of the, in a macroeconomic sense of anything that isn't priced into that transaction of willing buyer, willing seller is a certain externality. So let's assume you're buying a piece of clothing for a hundred rand. But the externality of the piece of clothing is river pollution and, you know, forced labor and, um, you know, kind of a lot of carbon um, offsets, which aren't included in that 100 rand price. They're actually kind of considered to be something else. Those are costs that consumers still pick up, but they still impact us. We just pick them up after the fact as social ills or, or things that we see that, that, that don't work. And the other comp- component of ethical pricing is when people utilize their market power to price out competitors or to create an unrealistic or overly like inflated price point for a service that you have no choice but to buy. So practical example, data in South Africa. Should it uh-huh. be this expensive? Probably not, right? The fact that most airtime expires and that makes up 40% of the, our telco company's profit margins you know, should that, is that an ethical pro- way to price it when the people that use that service are normally the poorest? Right. Are you actually following an ethical pricing model that says, guys, we could reduce everyone's data costs by X and or or let them last for 60 days instead of 30 days? You know, like there's a lot of different models you can have there. But but often what happens and this is where ethical pricing is really important is we let the desire for profit, which is very Keynesian kind of Keynesian kind of idea, you know, this profit and shareholder value over everything else override understanding of what does it take to have a functioning society and and what is society actually paying for so that the profits that these companies are making are actually not true profits 
not from a consumer point of view, right? A shareholder may say, oh, I'm making so much money, but actually the shareholder is picking up all these other costs, which are the day-to-day life costs, at, at the behest of making bigger profit in just one small component of their life. So, so ethical pricing really helps executives rethink how they're pricing products in the market to be far more, I guess, circular or socially considerate. It doesn't mean that they necessarily have to make less profit, right? Because a lot of people have really got ethical pricing right. But it does mean that they need to consider what they're doing. Say, so, well, is there a better way to make this profit? Or are there new opportunities to make profit which are better for everyone around? So that's kind of what ethical. And then you can dig into examples and you always uncover things in specific examples that you, you go into, which is always fun. No, never. The, the, the cell phone and the data price is a very interesting example. Because here in Israel, um, when you buy a cell phone contract, first of all, you're paying about 100, 120 rand per month. And you're getting 20, 25, 50 gigs of data. No one yeah. runs out of data. It's just unheard of. You can sit yeah. in the street on the train all day. You'll never have a problem. And yet in South Africa, you're saying that the majority of the profits on the big companies come from the data sales. So it becomes a chicken and egg scenario. Do we need the big profits in order to keep the employment and create growth? Or should we have smaller profits and cheaper and smaller margins in order to have a socioeconomic cost that's lower? It's, it's a very interesting story. And I suppose but, the other one that we never really think about is that every time we go to one of these cheap retailers, we want to get as many t-shirts as we can for a hundred rand or, but we never bother to think of, well, how do they get it so cheap? Why is it three for a hundred rand here? And one for 250 rand, just because of a little horse on the pocket. There's got to be a reason behind it. And that's obviously got to do with cheaper labor. It's got to do with cheaper labor. It's got to do with very different ways that they, they look at their, their components. So there's been a lot of pushback against a Chinese company called Shane, Xi'an, right? Which is this big fast fashion clothing manufacturer, same with the H&M and everyone else. And a few things have happened. Firstly, most fast fashion clothes get destroyed. So they do not sell out all their stock. They, they overproduce to get their price per unit down, but then they go and destroy a lot of the unsold units because it's cheaper for them to destroy or to resell or to push into, you know, African markets, the unsold units, you know, so like developing world markets, the unsold units, and it is to necessarily produce them at a higher cost. So they've got this cost of scale features that they're pushing for. That's number one. So, we're overproducing and then wasting, which is a huge environmental impact. It's not just labor cost impact, environmental impact, which you're all paying for, right? All the storms that now recently happened in the Western Cape, you know, all these things. I mean, some of it's in a normal weather pattern. Some of it is accentuated by what's happening, but somebody's going to pick up the bill, right? And it's, it's taxpayers that are picking up the bill. So I think that's, that's number one. Number two, what you'll see with, with that they're doing when they, when they're doing all the, all this kind of, um, mass production and cheap costs is they are flooding local markets with that, right? So you get back to like it's slightly protectionist maybe, but because their pricing is so unrealistic, right? They've priced out all the externalities that occur. When the price hits a local market, it can't sustainably be made in uh, South Africa or in Israel or anywhere else because it just, you know, it just can't be done. There isn't, you can't get that volume and that price, the price quantity component done. And so, 
we end up with local markets being damaged and fewer people actually having like work opportunities in those markets. So yes, you've got three t-shirts for a hundred, but actually what you've done is probably killed the local economy of lots of jobs and lots of opportunities for growth in the local economy because consumers want to buy cheap shirts. And the truth is it doesn't cost a hundred, right? It costs a lot more than a hundred. You're just not paying the price at the till. You're paying the price somewhere else. And that's part of the challenge. And I think that was an interesting example because we do know um, many years ago, not many, but maybe five or seven years ago, there was a major upheaval in the textile industry in South Africa. The bottom line is South Africa cannot compete with the imported stuff. It just yeah. kind of, as long as they niche or they're producing something very specific, you just can't compete with the massive factories that are in the East. And that is hurting local production. But ultimately, the argument is that the consumer is getting what they want and able to clothe their family a lot quicker. Now, but just before we, we go to the break, maybe let's just discuss, you've written a book or you are in process of writing a book which hasn't been published yet. Yeah. What motivated you to write a book on this topic? So we've been doing a lot of work with large manufacturers around the world, right? Like we, we kind of do a lot of product innovation work and everything else. And we started a project recently about like just about two or three years ago where we basically started going into township areas and into developing worlds. We've got a project in Bangladesh now and Kenya and all these markets and working with the FMCG companies to try and automate and, re- and get rid of packaging and reduce the food of the cost of food. What we realize is that it costs more to buy food in a spaza shop than it does at the Woolworths. Right. And that's, that's a problem. So the same like tastic rice will cost more in a spaza shop than it will at Woolies. And when you start seeing inequalities in the market like that, you start realizing that why is this happening? Why are the poorest of the poor paying so much more than the richest of the rich, right? Than the 1%. Like why, why do we have these structural inequalities? And that led me to really start digging into it more and more. And, and the truth is I've been a pricing nerd for a long time, you know, from probably about 20 years, I did some courses at MIT on it and, you know, kind of studied economics and, and really has, and actually wrote the, the, um, the, the marketing textbooks chapters on pricing for UCT. So, so I've been involved in pricing for a long time, mostly from digital transformation and how pricing of products change when you, when you dealing with these channel changes. And, and as I was writing that book, which was originally just about digital transformation, the ethical impact came in and I realized it was a bigger crisis or a bigger issue for us going forward as society, then how do I maximize my money utilizing digital channels and finding new, new pricing? And that's kind of how it became. That's kind of sort of the passion for it. When's the book going to hit the shelves? Uh, probably go online in about a month's time. It's already been finished writing, but it's kind of just being fine tuned and re-edited at the moment. You know, it's never, it always, you always read it again and go like, Oh, wait, I could say that better. A hundred percent. Never. Let's take a quick break and we need to run to the shops. And we'll be back with you in a moment. This is RV on business. Nova, coming back to you. Thank you so much for waiting on the line there. Um, so the book is really a, a, it's a transformative process that you've been involved in for many years going forward. Um, but you clearly hit a, a raw nerve um, because a lot of people are asking, if you could please explain how you're paying more for rice in a spaza shop than you would in Woolworths. Just let us unpack it. I suppose the bottom line is that the rand per kilo is higher. But the question is why? So a couple of reasons. 
Firstly, because people in townships often don't have transport that is readily available. And so the local spaza shops take advantage of the fact that there's no transport and you have limited options of how to get the food otherwise. That's number one. Number two, they don't get the spaza shops don't have the same wholesale deals or bulk buying power that the retailers do. And they often have to go and buy from wholesalers like macro and all those people. And that kind of, you know, pushes up their costs. So their costs, their margins aren't as deep as our retailers, as a massive retailers. And thirdly, because they can, right? Because that's like, where else are you going to go? And the prices are relatively the same across. There's no competition really from a pricing point of view in Spaza shops. It's not like it's going to be one rand cheaper here and one rand. It's not how it works. It's pretty much the same price everywhere. And it's, it's kind of like everyone understands what the price is in the market. So, so that's what, what you see really. They also don't get the promotions that you get in the checkers and the pick and pays and those things. So, so those big brands don't come to them and say, Oh, I'm going to give you a 20% off promotion into the Spaza channels. So there's none of those opportunities that people get either. So, so systemically, they're just continuously priced out of the market. Um, and it happens across all categories of products that they're faced with. It's just, it's just the fact. I mean, it's the Gini coefficient, the difference between the haves and the haves not. And that's those that, that, that's that trap, the, the, the vortex of poverty where people just get caught in and there's almost just no way of getting out of it. But coming well, back because, to, because by the way, because we, because we make it like that, right? Because we've created systems that, and, and again, like I'm, I'm a firm capitalist, right? And it's a very interesting issue because we always have a, Big debate across the partners, you know, but, but what is interesting for me is we've created systems that say that the, the poorer people will pay more because they can't fight back. So if you look at all what happened with African bank, for example, right? Unethical pricing. You can buy this piece of furniture, right? Over three years, but at, at a maximum interest rate. Okay. Fine. But then what happens is, oh, but you also need to take out insurance on it. And you just take out this. And so what happens is people are paying three times the value of the piece of furniture over the three-year period because we're unethically forcing them to take out products to get something basic in place. Did they need so much money like to, to like be so kind of, you know, punitive? No. You know, it wasn't necessary. In fact, it probably maybe led to their demise because they created a price that was unsustainable for their consumers. And 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 it's greed that often drives that behavior where we do it systemically, right? And yet that that's kind of that's unethical pricing at its best when you're creating these products that are just taking advantage of people that don't have any other option. That's that's how it works. You know, on that note, your I've got a, a note here that said the subtitle <coughs> book says finding the balance between purpose and profit. Yeah. I mean, as I said to you before we came on online, you know. Isn't the price what the market will hold? You know, ultimately, capitalism is about making profits. If one doesn't make profits, then we don't have healthy companies. If we don't have healthy companies, we don't have fixed and continuous employment. But where does the purpose and the profits sort of hit that ethical envelope? Sure. So, so I, I want to start out with that first comp- concept of, of- Companies are just there to make a profit, as big a profit as possible. That is very much 1980s thinking. 1980s, Keynesian uh, kind of like neoliberalism really took over in our in our economic thinking. Jack Welch came into power. He became lauded as like the best CEO ever. 
And that thinking really took hold that the business's purpose is to make a profit. The truth is, before that, business's pro- like purposes were more equal, equal, right? Peter Drucker would tell you the business's pro- purpose is to make customers, not profits, right? So our, our understanding of what businesses should do evolves over time. And I think now we evolve into a period to realize that purely making a profit isn't enough for a business. You have to make a profit, but not at the cost of society and ecology and everything else. You've got to be, you've got to make the right decisions. And the right decision doesn't mean, oh, I'm just looking for the bottom line. Otherwise, we'd really be in trouble as a planet overall. So, so I think that's the first one. And then, and then where does it meet the purpose and profit? It's a lot of companies nowadays want to build a business that isn't just isn't just there to deliver the bottom line, but also to, to make society better or to contribute back to their customer group. So Patagonia is a great example, right? Patagonia, you know, which is a multi-billion dollar business nowadays, started out, like they're, they're famous for saying, don't buy this jacket, right? Their whole view is each of our items of, of clothing is more expensive, true, but we'll repair it for you, right? So we've got repair shops and we'll always repair the clothing that you that bring us to repair. We'll just, if when you're done with it, we'll buy it back from you, right? And create like a secondhand clothing market. And they continuously just use the best materials, most ecologically friendly, everything else. And they, and they swap product lines, which they find are not supporting the planet. So you would think that kind of psychology of selling less, having a longer lifetime for that piece of item. So you don't need to buy a replacement for it, you know, would have lower profits and lower revenue, but it's the opposite. Their profits and revenues have grown up. They became the, the largest repair shop in the U.S. retail category. They created this whole category of repair shops, which generates some additional revenues now where they can go around. And actually, sometimes they just repair for free. So they have that whole model. Vintage clothing from them sells sometimes at 10 times or 20 times the cost of what it costs new, right? The, the, the vintage Patagonia clothing. They've just been making money hand over fist without wanting to make money hand over fist because their key focus is saying, you know, they do things like, you know, on Black Friday, they give all the money from the revenues or the profit to ecological kind of like to, to, you know, to, to society and to kind of to, to protect the environment. You know, they go against the grain all the time because they, they desire for, for profit. They understand that if there isn't green spaces, if there aren't mountains and rivers and places for people to hike, they don't have a business. And that's how they kind of pursue themselves. So they kind of align the two together. You know, never on, on a similar, but maybe opposite note, there's, a, there's a, two or three comments that have come through about fisheries and fish to say that is the price that we are paying for fish, number one, ethical? And number two, are we not overpaying simply because the demand is high because people are concerned about cholesterol in beef? In other words, a fear factor that you've got a captive market and therefore you can charge what you want. But uh, to me, the most important thing is fishing is very regulated. But at the end of the day, the pollution from fishing is massive. The damage is massive. When you and I go out and have a sole and chips, are we really paying the right price for that sole? So, so it's a great question, right? I mean, I think... I sometimes look at the value chains there. And I don't know enough about fishing to kind of, you know, I've, I've never looked at the value chain and what's happening there, but I know that if I live in Hart Bay, you know, and if I go to the harbor, you know, a, like I can get a, a king clip for 120 rand a kilo, right? 
if I go to Woolies, which is on the other side of my house, I can get, you know, like a same King clip will be like, you know, 340 Rand a kilo kind of model, right? So somewhere in the supply chain, we're paying for a lot of hands touching food, right? And that doesn't necessarily mean that the, the value that we're – now, maybe 340 is the right price, but it would be better if that went back into protecting the ocean or, you know, paying the fishermen better so that they produce less quantity. It's not, it's not the supply that's the problem that's creating the high price. Logistics chains are creating the high price, right? And and we've got to ask ourselves, and we'll hold on a second, why are all these people making money out of this, right, that we're paying 340 Rand versus 120 Rand retail at the harbor, 340 Rand, you know, retail at, at Woolies, um, and is that really value that's coming back to, to the problems we're trying to solve? So, so for me, the ethical pricing on that is, is the price too high, too low? I, I really don't know in that market, but I assume that we're paying a high price anyway. We're just not seeing the money go maybe to the most effective way of, of containing that price. That would be my, my take, but I, again, don't know enough about it. That never, sometimes I think that listeners sit together and then they just send like a whole batch of questions from five different <laughs> addresses. What's interesting that's come up here with a typical South African and maybe more specific Johannesburg scenario is electricity supply. Why are we paying top rate for electricity? It's incredibly expensive. Supply is poor to non-existent. Surely at those rates, it should have corrected by now. Is it, so my question to you is, is it a, uh, is it an ethical dilemma or is it just a, um, you know, a reality of living in a country like South Africa. I think it's a reality of living in a country like South Africa where it, it, it's obviously unethical, right? But is it ethical or not? It's not ethical, right? It's not an ethical situation, but it's not set up to be ethical situations. Most of what we experience is not ethical. We are we, like the theory, the myth is that free capitalism means that we are price makers, that the consumer decides what the price is. Good luck deciding what the price is on electricity. It's what you, it's what you're given. It's not what you, it's not what you're willing to take. And this is the, this is the big myth from Adam Smith. Don't forget a lot of economic theory comes from like the 1600s, right? Early industrialization, very basic markets, right? And a lot of it was very theoretical. None of it was real world. It's never been a real world practice. Economics is like a philosophy, right? It's not a science. It's a philosophy. It's often counts as, as a science, but it's not really like, you know, demand and supply curves don't go in straight lines. But it's just easy to draw. And if you're teaching a first-year university student, like, you know, how it works, like, oh, there's demand and supply, and that's where the price comes in. But that's not how it works at all, right? If the supplier is not willing to make goods under a certain price because they don't make enough margin, then they don't do it. And and in a market where, where there isn't really free market information or real competitive power, you'll see that there's, like, take the price or don't take the price. It's not It's not a debate. There's no options. So, and that's, and that's a lot. That's most of the world nowadays. Large companies, large government institutions deciding the price points and, and either hiding it from you or, or creating practices which they kind of put into law. I'll give you a good example. The one that always grates me. Let's assume a very rich person wants to buy a flat somewhere in, let's make a Joburg, Santon for two million rand, right? Okay. But three other flats or four other flats. He goes to Investec. And Investec says to him, cool, this is going to be your interest rate. It's prime less 3%, right? Or whatever it is. A poor person goes and wants to buy the same flat, exactly the same flat, 
Will they get prime minus 3%? No. They will get to pay prime plus because they're poor. And so let's ask ourselves the ethical question here. Both of the mortgages are underlined by the same asset. Correct. Right? It's exactly the same asset. It's worth 2 million rand. So the valuer comes in and says, yep, this is 2 million rand. Right? Why do we charge the poor person more than we do the rich person when we know they're poor? Right? We're saying to the person, hey, you can't afford this or you're going to struggle to afford this. I'm going to make sure it's almost impossible for you to afford this because I've got some theory of risk that you could default. Right? Which isn't aligned to the guy that has five flats who's probably more likely to default because he probably has like very bad spend. Like, you know what I'm saying? Like, oh, he has money. It's fine. No, it's not fine. It's not a better risk necessarily, you know, but we assume more cash means less risk, which isn't true. And we ensure that the poor person pays more. And that's unethical. Now, though, the way things are going today where, you know, we were talking about your book, the way publishing is done, anybody can publish today. Um, you know, it's just a whole different world. The fact that um, retail stores on the high streets in the UK and, and in New York City, for example, are really suffering because people simply get 14 deliveries from Amazon a day because they need to- t- tissues and then they remember toothpaste and then they remember toilet paper. It's insane what happens and it all gets delivered. Where are we heading to when it comes to ethical pricing? Is this something that's in, in the consciousness of people, just like people are worried about buying um, organic or buying stuff that's not uh, um, genetically modified? Is this something in the psyche or are we simply going to keep going on the way we are now? I think... It's starting to emerge, right? People are starting to think. So, so firstly, in the EU, there's a lot of legislation coming out for FMCG manufacturers, which makes them look, they have to now kind of manage end-to-end the products that they're creating, right? So it's not just about when the product is sold, it's also cleaning up the product. So that is going to start pushing up prices and changing prices that they're facing in Europe. And this is kind of a lot of the stuff we're working on in Bangladesh and developing markets. As these big FMCG suppliers are trying to get their heads around you know, you can no longer sell sachets, which no one ever picks up and are just pollutant because they never decompose. How do I now sell shampoo into the lower income markets? You know, how do I sell washing powder? All of those things, you know, those are projects we're working on all the time and, and making us think through that, that life, that life cycle and seeing the big companies look at that life cycle, right? The, so, so you're seeing that being forced from a regulatory point of view. Here and there, there's pockets of conscious consumers or one another, they're buying something from somebody that has an ethical background. And those companies often do very well for what they are and for their sizes. And if you give them enough time, like a Patagonia, they become huge giant businesses, right? That evolve with time and really lead the market in, in what, what should happen. And what happens, unfortunately, on the other side is you get greenwashing, right? So what's been happening in the, in the kind of, Retail sector and even in the investment sector is the whole rise of ESG, right? ESG as a concept. And, and, and H&M, for example, recently was sued by its customers. There was a class action lawsuit against H&M because they, they promoted a range of clothing as more friendly to the planet. And they charge a premium for it because they said, well, people that care about the planet will pay more for better clothing that's better the planet. The only problem was that, that clothing was completely not better for the planet, right? It actually utilized more water and was more damaging to the planet than the traditional clothing line and therefore the lawsuit by their customers that had purchased this saying we want our money back and you guys have to stop this and what we see also in the in the uk now in the eu there's 
far more stringent advertising rules against companies that are pretending to be green, right? Just to get the benefit of consumers buying from them. So it's a big enough issue that consumers are buying stuff that is green and willing to pay a premium, but it's not a big enough issue for the people running the companies or the management of the companies to actually really make a difference in what they're doing. They'd rather just lie about it very often. So now there's very strict advertising rules around this to try and stop companies from falsely portraying what they're doing to make, you know, from a green perspective, because the truth is it's really hard. It's a very, very hard business case to make to say, I've got a factory making 10 million tons of this. And if I change from product X, which is harmful to the environment to product Y, which is better for the environment, it's going to cost me an extra five cents, but I'm not going to sell X amount. I'm just going to like, it's just hard maths for executives to do. And everyone pushes it down the line to somebody else to do it, right? No one wants to be the executive to say, guys, we've got to do a better thing here. Like we've, we've got to make the right choice. We know this is bad. You know, we know we're hurting the environment. We know we're putting pollutants in the water, but if no one catches us, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's very, very difficult situation for people to, to be in. And, and so yes, the question is, is there a rising thing? I guess there is, but it's also being counteracted by the fact that people are just greenwashing a lot of it away. You know, I think it's so much of it has also got to do with the way the whole world is evolving. You know, the whole idea of, for example, green vehicles, um, you know, only using electric cars. Um, I personally have a major challenge with that because it's all good and well. But those batteries to produce, I mean, and they're toxic. Electricity yeah. that charges it. I mean, most countries are still using fossil fuel to do that. At what cost does that fossil fuel come to? In South Africa, fossil fuel, to me, excuse excision, burns me. Because yeah. at the end of the day, there are a elite handful that are benefiting from government tenders um, and are profiting from all the chaos that's going on. Um, and yet we could have electric cars, which would maybe in South Africa, which would add to the variety, but because supply is so unreliable, we can't do it. So it's really a, a scenario that we have to look at in total. But what you've done is that you've put the discussion on the table. And you put it in the forefront and people are there and people are discussing it. Um, never, unfortunately, we've got a minute left. So let me give you half a minute to, to wrap up. What is your, your last say on the concept of, of ethical pricing? So I think my last say on, on the concept is that if you're running a business, right? If, if you're the entrepreneur or the business owner, and this is a business that you're running, the, the, the decision to be ethical in your pricing sits on you. Right. Look at your belief system. Look at what it is that you want to create. What is the society you want to see? Look around and, and start making decisions. It doesn't mean you have to make less money. There's often more creative ways that you can make money or find additional revenue streams that, that, that will surpass, even surpass what you've got. But make that decision based on what, like what the societies you want to be and look at your pricing just to reflect that. Just say, well, hold on a second. Is this really right? Not just from a consumer point of view and a customer perspective, but also from an environmental perspective. And, and those are things we run out of time. Never does digital a partner, digital transformation company, DYDX as always. Thank you so much for your time. Craig, thanks for pushing the buttons and we will speak to you next week.